Our gracious Father, you are mighty in all your ways. There is no other God but you. Father, you are perfect and holy and righteous, and yet you are gracious and merciful and compassionate in love. And we are so grateful that we can come before your presence, that we can study your word, that we can sing songs of worship. Lord, and you receive our worship as a sacrifice. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher tonight, that you would lead us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this account, we're going to see David's quote-unquote final mistake. And I put up the quoting marks um, because there are some people who still think, and we talked about this last week, that chapter 24 is not chronological. That this and the last couple chapters uh, were added in at some point, but they weren't really chronological as far as the happenings were concerned. Um, there's no direct evidence in Scripture for that. Um, there's nothing like in that tells us anything of the sort. Uh, it's possible. I wouldn't fight over it, but I don't really feel the need to take it that way. So this would have been the last like bad thing he really did before we get into, when we get back in, the book, in August and we get into 1 Kings, uh, David will die 12 verses into chapter 2, and Solomon will be king. Um, so yeah, anywho, this account is repeated for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And uh, you don't necessarily have to go there, but if you did read them side by side, you would notice that 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24 have a few minor disagreements. Now, none of those disagreements are actual discrepancies or contradictions. We will talk about them uh, as they come up. There's only really a couple. Uh, but with all that being said, chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aror, on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi. They came to Dan, Ja'an, and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to south Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. That's quite a long walk. 
And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So we are not told why the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel. Uh, we actually find out, if you go to the First Chronicles passage, that God used the devil to tempt David, David still had to give in to that temptation. Uh, now, what's really interesting about that, just like we see in the first couple chapters of the book of Job and several other places, while the devil is called the God of this world, and he has worked very hard to blind people to the truth of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we've talked about that the last couple weeks. He's limited and while he can, he can do things that are unpleasant, and he can bother us, and he can poke us, and he can tempt us as followers of Christ, what he can do is limited by the sovereign hand of God. Now, that doesn't mean Satan's not going to do his best. Even within those confines, he's, he's a very crafty one. Um, and a real big jerk. That's what John always calls me on the pickleball court. If I have a really good serve that he can't hit back, you big jerk. We could reserve that statement for the devil. I don't think I'm that bad. Whatever the case, David is tempted to do this census. Now, there really wasn't a law against taking a census. Um, the Jews refused to take a census to this day because of this incident. Uh, but there were times in the book of Numbers, multiple times in the book of Numbers, times in the book of Leviticus, um, times in the book of Exodus, when God actually commanded them to count the number of people. So it's not like God wanted them to do the census in order to break some law or that David was tempted to do this for that reason. Um, but it's David's pride. David's pride is what does this because the men who were counted were the fighting men of Israel, right? If you go back to verse nine, valiant men who drew the sword. So David really wasn't worried about how many people were now living in Israel. He wanted to know how strong his military was. Yet this is the same guy who writes Psalms where he says, you know, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but I will trust in the name of the Lord my God. But it would appear David was curious just how strong he is. Now, why would God's anger be aroused against Israel? Again, we are not told. We know from Israel's history up to this point, and oh man, as we get into Kings and Chronicles, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. The kings are going to get worse. The sin is going to get worse. And because of that, there was probably, surely, some of that going on at this time. And God didn't like it. And God holds his people to a higher standard than the rest of the world. And I think he does the same for us. We are God's representatives. Uh, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are God's ambassadors. God is pleading through us with the world around us to be reconciled to him through Christ. 
And by that extension, 2 Corinthians 5 says, we have been then given the ministry of reconciliation. So, how well do we do when we do things that dishonor God in front of non-believers? Now, I would love to tell you I've never done that. And you may want to lie about it as well. But we've all done it. I've had to apologize to non-believers before because I did or said something that was very unchristian, uh, and I did it in front of them or towards them. First Peter four. Wow. First Peter four seventeen. I actually said first feeder poor seventeen, which isn't there. You will not find first feeder in the Bible. First Peter four seventeen. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And I find that interesting. Everybody loves to bring up 2 Chronicles 7.14, which we'll get to in a year, um, give or take. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And people put this out there and go, you know what? America needs to pray and turn to God. And that's true. But who is that verse addressed to? If my people. It's us. It starts with us, folks. So I already talked about the fact that this is likely due to the pride. Maybe he was thinking about launching some kind of military campaign against someone and wanted to know how many folks he had but whatever the case it wasn't right now 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword in Israel and 500,000 in Judah 1.3 million people in that time that was a pretty big army later on um oh was it Sennacherib we'll get there in Kings or Chronicles but he sent an army against Israel, besieged the city of Jerusalem with 173,000 soldiers. Well, at this time, that wouldn't have worked. They outnumbered them almost 10 to 1. But by that time, this army didn't exist anymore. Well, I mean, it was a long time later, so all these guys died anyway. But just the fact Israel couldn't put forward that kind of military force any longer. Now, if you go to First Chronicles again, um, the numbers are slightly different. Uh, the one for Judah is actually, it's like 480,000, I think. Uh, so it's slightly lower. So you just, a nice round up, right? They pastor counted. You guys all know what pastor counting is? Right? You count the number of people in church, 1, 2, 3, 32, 33. That's about 50 people there, right? Pastor counting. I don't do that anymore. If there's more than one, there was at least 10. But um, so it's just possible that they rounded up. Uh, but the number for Israel was over a million. And it's possible that First Chronicles is actually not just reporting the military force. That First Chronicles may have added in uh, perhaps men who were approaching the right age, um, whatnot. We don't know for sure, but it doesn't really matter. 
Verse 10. Then David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Seer is just another word for prophet. Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in the land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. David's conviction for his actions, right? I do think it's very, very cool that this happened before Gad came to him, right? Before the prophet came to him and said something, David went, oh no, I blew it. I think the longer I walk with the Lord and... um, by God's grace, the closer I get to him. My time between stupidity and repentance has grown drastically shorter. I want to say that's because I'm a little more sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction. Um, I don't know. That's what I want it to be. (laughs) But I love that David does this. Whether it's chronological here in 2 Samuel or not, it was later on in his life because he was clearly at peace. He wasn't at war with anybody at this time. But God sends Gad to him with three options. Seven years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of plague. And David says, you know what? I'm going to fall on the mercy of God. So the destruction stops right before it reaches Jerusalem and David pleads for his people saying it was his sin and they should not suffer for it now we are often convicted when we give into temptation and hopefully that conviction will lead us to the same kind of repentance john 16 8 says and when he has come he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment that of course is speaking of the holy spirit in Proverbs 28:13, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Do you see the difference there? I love it. Absolutely love it. Sometimes I think we're dumb enough to try to hide our sin. 
Maybe we want to hide it from other people. Maybe some people don't need to know what it is, and that's fine. But how dumb can we be? And this is not meant to insult any of you. I'm including myself. That we would try to think God didn't see. Oh, I got away with it. God wasn't watching. Yes, he was. Doesn't matter what it is. When conviction comes, when we realize what we've done, fix it. So I'll tell you a fun story. I'm going to tell on myself a little bit. I told this story to the purpose class last night, so several people have already heard it. Yesterday, I got a phone call. It was actually a message um, from somebody that needed help with something. And um, I had a really bad attitude about it. It wasn't even a big thing. I just didn't want to do it because I'm very mature. Um, (laughs) I I don't know why. I, I have no reason. I just didn't want to do it. But I've told you all many times that I am, you know, the two sons that Jesus talks about. Father goes to the first and works in my, go work in my field today. And the first son says, I go, sir, but he doesn't go. And then he goes to the second son and the second son says, I don't want to. But later he feels guilty and he goes and works in the field. I am that guy. That's me. I I typically do what the Lord tells me, but I usually complain about it first. So I whined and moaned about it. And finally I was like, yep, let's just, let's just get it done. And I got it done. And afterwards... The person was very excited because we got it done, and I was very excited and very blessed because of what it meant. And when all was said and done, I walked out of my office and I immediately started repenting for my horrible attitude. There was no point in, what am I going to say to God anyway? Well, you know, Lord, you, mis- you misinterpreted my attitude. I wasn't being cranky and crabby and stubborn, right? What I was written, that, what good would it do? If you try to cover your sin, you will not prosper. But when we confess it and forsake it, we will have mercy. And that's what 1 John 1, 8 through 10 tells us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now I'm going to give you a little sneak peek, not this Sunday, but next On June 25th, we're going to be studying uh, Psalm 51. I asked everybody to pray for me. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in those couple weeks. Um, God put two psalms on my heart, Psalm 51 and Psalm 86. So that's June 25th and July 2nd. You can read ahead. Uh, But for uh, when we get into Psalm 51, it's all about repentance. Now, if you really want to do your homework, you can read Psalm 51, and then you can get a book called The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. I'm borrowing a little bit from that book. Um, You don't have to, but like you're not going to get points. I'm not going to love you more. God's not, you're not going to be a better Christian for it. But if you wanted to, you could. So now there's consequences. Now notice David, I said this already, but David repented before he came to Gad or before Gad came to him. Repentance Even sincere repentance doesn't mean there are not consequences for our sin. Would be nice, wouldn't it? Oh, I really did bad. Lord, I'm sorry. All right. No no problems. But sometimes there's consequences for our sin. More often, I think, than not. Uh, Now, 
Thinking of First Chronicles, the, the time frame for the famine is shorter than the time frame here. Uh, but again, it's not really a big deal. But David throws himself on the mercy of God. Now remember, this is under the Old Testament law. We, by God's grace, are no longer under the law. We, by God's grace, know that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. That's Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for us because our punishment has been taken on the cross. That doesn't mean God won't correct us. We've talked about that a lot. Punishment we will never receive. Jesus already took that for us. But as a loving father, God will correct us. And oftentimes, God will correct us through the consequences of our own actions. And sometimes, God doesn't have to do anything. He just has to let our bad decisions play out. And there's a great sign, my wife has not allowed me ever to put it up in my office, that says, everything happens for a reason. And sometimes that reason is you're stupid and you make bad decisions. I've always loved that because it's true. Oh, why would God allow this? I've had, I've had a number of times counseling sessions somewhere. Why would God allow this? Okay, what's going on? Well, I cheated on my, my wife. Okay. And, and now she won't talk to me. Well, duh. Or, you know, I lost my job. Oh, well, what happened at your job? Well, I called in sick for a week. Were you sick? No. My boss found out. Um, you deserved that. Right? Sometimes the consequences uh, is what we, we would call when we were school teachers. My wife still teaches, but um, natural consequences. Kids in my class always used to like to lean back in their chairs. And I used to warn them. You know, if you do that, eventually you're going to fall. Oh, no, I won't, Mr. Starr. No, I won't. And one day... And I told them, every time they did it, when you fall, not if, when you fall, I promise you I will laugh at you. And if you get blood on my carpet, I'm going to make you clean it up. One day, one of the kids whack on the floor, and I just started cracking up. And the rest of the class laughed along with me. Now, I know the kid really well, and he's, he's a great kid. Uh, last year, I dumped a bucket of water on his head at camp. But great, great kid. But I, we did. We just teased him for it mercilessly. And I'm like, didn't I tell you not to do that? Yeah, I didn't think I'd fall. Natural consequences. But whether God simply allows it to be a natural consequence or like what we see here with Gad, he allows or causes the consequence for our actions. Consequences will happen. But let's get back to the fact that there is no condemnation for us. I want to go back to good news. Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? We're going to come back to that question. So the next question, if God is for us, who can be against us? I love rhetorical questions. Because if God is for us, no one can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Is God going to withhold anything good from us? Of course not. And the proof of that is Jesus. 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? No one. It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now, Satan will accuse us, but God will not. He gave us Jesus, and he delivers us. Satan will try to bring charges against us, but God justified us. Satan will try to condemn us, but Jesus died for us and he makes intercession for us so we can be forgiven and free. So then we go back to the first question. What do we say to these things? Wow. Thank you. Praise you. I don't think there's words big enough. It's not an excuse to sin. You can go read Romans chapter 6. God's grace is not an excuse to sin, but here's the reality. We're going to blow it from time to time, right? If we say we have no sin, we're we're just lying. But when we confess that sin, not only will God forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, whatever the consequences may be, because of his great love, he'll walk with us through them, even if they're our fault. How awesome is that? Now, once the plague begins... 70,000 people are killed. That's roughly 5% of the number of people that were counted. And God stops the destruction before Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if your Bible has the word relented there in verse 16. My Bible has the word relented. Um, Some Bibles will actually use the word repented, which is a poor translation. um, Because, well, it's not, the word there isn't repented. Especially not in the frame uh, or the definition that we know concerning repentance. Because God does not repent. God does not change his mind, according to Malachi 3.6 and multiple other places. So this is not God intending to destroy Jerusalem, and then when he gets there, changes his mind. That's not how that works. God never intended to destroy Jerusalem. That was never the case. He was always going to stop before he came to Jerusalem. But now you have to picture David. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. So David was given supernatural sight, kind of like Balaam, right? Balaam's going down the road on his donkey and the donkey stops and pushes him up against a wall and finally he wants to kill the donkey and the donkey says, hey, what did I do? And Balaam, instead of going, whoa, a talking donkey, starts fighting with the donkey. It's one of the best things in all of scripture. Uh, I'm really hoping, I seriously doubt Balaam ever repented and got saved because he was killed by the Israelites later on. But I would have loved to talk to Balaam and go, dude, when your donkey talked to you, didn't you think something was going on? Whatever the case was, after the, the conversation with the donkey, the angel of the Lord with the sword drawn revealed himself. To Balaam. And Balaam was like, oh, but David saw something very similar. And David saw the angel stop before Jerusalem. So in David's mind, maybe it looked like the Lord changed his mind, but that's just not how things work. But now we see David's heart as a king and a shepherd of Israel. I love this statement. Surely I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? 
Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. He knew it was his sin. No doubt about it. But he didn't want the people to suffer for it. So he asks God to put the sin on him. This, of course, is a picture of Jesus. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus took it all. All the sin of every human being that ever existed. Unfortunately, not every human being that ever existed will receive the free gift of salvation. It doesn't change that what he did on the cross was sufficient. I just love David's heart here. And I love that Jesus did that for us. Verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of our Una, the Jebusite. I kind of want to wonder, right, just because I have severe ADHD. Um, when they say Aru Una, Aru, that guy, the Jebusite, were there more than one that you had to distinguish Aru Una, the Jebusite, say, against Aru Una, the Bethlehemite, or Aru Una, the Ben? Were there a lot of Aru Unas in the time? I don't know. Verse 19. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked, and he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So he went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are the oxen for the burnt sacrifice, and the threshing implements, and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. Don't you love people who talk about themselves in the third person? Jason doesn't like that. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So Gad comes back, says, go up there and build an altar. And David says, okay. And this guy, he sees the king coming. He bows him. He goes, what? you can have it. Just take it. It's yours, right? You're the king. I see what's going on, right? People are dying. You're here to make a sacrifice. Going to take it. It's all yours. David looks at him and says, no. I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Because a sacrifice is not a sacrifice if it's not a sacrifice. Does that make sense? Want me to say it again? For those who are listening to the recording, right? A sacrifice is not a sacrifice if it's not a sacrifice. Jesus pointed this out for us in Luke 21. And he looked up, and uh, this is verse 1 through 4. And he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty 
put in all the livelihood that she had. It's not about the amount. Whether we're talking about tithes and offerings or we're talking about the time you give or we're talking about whatever, it's never going to be about the amount. God doesn't care about the amount. He does not need our money. We give it to him as a a sign of faith and as an act of worship, but he doesn't need it. So why do we give sacrificially? Because we need to be like David. We should not give to God what costs us nothing. Now, he buys the oxen and the threshing floor in the wood for 50 shekels of silver. Now, in our day and age, 50 shekels of silver would be worth a couple thousand dollars. If you turned over to 1 Chronicles 21, it says that he bought it all for 600 shekels of gold, which in our day and age would be probably in the millions. So that's a pretty big difference, right? A couple thousand or a couple million. But again, not a discrepancy. And this has to do with the Hebrew words, both in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles. Um, but here's the deal. In 1 Chronicles, sorry. In 1 Chronicles, David buys everything from Arauna. Here, all we're told about is the oxen, the threshing floor, and the wood. But in 1 Chronicles, he buys everything. He buys his, all of his land. He buys his house, his livestock. He buys it all. Well, that's why it would seem that there's a discrepancy, but there's not. We just have the price for the oxen, the wood, and the threshing floor in 2 Samuel, and then the price for everything else in 1 Chronicles 21. Why does he buy it all? Well, again, we'll get there, but a little sneak peek. You're going to forget by the time we get to 1 Chronicles 21, and don't worry about it. So will I. Um, But he buys everything, and he sets it aside as the place where he wants Solomon to build the temple. And this is where Solomon builds the temple. Now, what's very cool about that, um, there's been argument over the Temple Mount for, well, uh, thousands of years. And if you ever seen the movie, The Kingdom of Heaven, it's about a guy, it's a true story about a guy who was tasked with defending Jerusalem from invaders. Great movie, if you've never seen it. But the Dome of the Rock Mosque sits where most people think the temple was. And so there's been contention for a very long time that the Jews will never be able to rebuild the temple because the Dome of the Rock Mosque is there. And if the Jews tried to build a temple up there, well, then we're going to have a holy war. Right? Because I don't think the Muslims would be very receptive of one of their most sacred mosques being torn down by the Jewish nation. Probably wouldn't go well. However, if the location of Arauna's land is accurate, which it is, because it's in the Bible, and they've done uh, ground-penetrating radar scans, all kinds of stuff, what they figured out is, yes, where the Dome of the Rock is was part of the Temple Mount, but it's not where the Temple was. It's actually where the Court of the Gentiles would be with where the Temple used to sit. Now, that's really, really interesting, because when you go to the book of Ezekiel, 
And God in chapters 40 through 48 is describing the new temple that's going to be built. He tells Ezekiel to measure it. And guess what he tells Ezekiel to leave out in his measuring? The court of the Gentiles, which is where the Dome of the Rock sits. Which means the Jewish people could rebuild their temple without disturbing the Dome of the Rock. Now that's really important because the next temple to be built is going to be the last temple built. And I am of the opinion that it's going to be built after the tribulation begins. The Bible doesn't say that specifically. Um, it's very possible that it may, they may begin construction on it before the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation and Great Tribulation begin. But we know it will be built by halfway through the Tribulation because the Antichrist stands in the midst of it and says, I'm God and you need to worship me. At which point the Jews go, uh-oh, we made a mistake. We bet on the wrong horse and they run. But I don't know why I brought all that up. It's just really fun to think about. But eventually Solomon will build the temple there. And there you go. We finished 2 Samuel. Woohoo! I should have brought like a little party popper. So, as I was mentioning at the beginning, uh, next week, June 21st, we have a movie night at 6 p.m. And I'm, I, the last two movies have been great this time. And I hope it doesn't turn everybody off. I don't care because I want to watch Jonah. Right? Jonah, if you have not seen Jonah, a VeggieTales movie, it is one of the greatest cinematic masterpieces of all time. It is. It's an amazing movie. It's unfortunate that it bankrupt big idea but it is still an amazing movie uh, we're going to do dinner a little differently i thought i'd make spaghetti i'll make a big pot of spaghetti for everybody um, if you want to bring some kind of side or some kind of cookie or i don't know feel free but we'll still do that at six o'clock the following week june 28th there will be no wednesday night service uh, because we'll be at camp then in july uh, there will be wednesday nights on the 5th 12th and 19th where there's going to be some sort of devotion and some sort of special time, like a game night or something. Uh, there will be no live stream, as I mentioned earlier, until the first week of August. Because on July 26th, we have another moving night. And then on August 2nd, the night before my wife turns 47, I may need a ride home. We will return to our journey through the Bible as we begin First Kings. Until then, let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for the journey that we've had through the Bible so far. I just think it has been, uh, I know it's been rewarding for me to study it and, and to prepare, and, and I, I hope it's been rewarding for everyone else who's participated. I pray that when your spirit, Lord, brings conviction to our hearts because we've done something that was dishonoring to you in any way, that we would be quick to repent. Help us take the words of Proverbs 28 very seriously, that we wouldn't try to cover our sin because there's no benefit to that, but that we would confess it and forsake it, knowing that you'll have mercy on us. I pray, Father, that we would constantly walk in the freedom we have that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That he paid all of it. I pray, Father, that we would live in that knowledge and that we would glorify you for it constantly. 
pray you'd be with us as we go throughout the rest of our week. In Jesus' name, amen.